1: There were Martians back in those days. Vastly superior races of creatures who were just like us humans, unless they weren't. They were farmers. An agrarian race that plowed the rich Martian soil and irrigated their crops, creating a lush bucolic paradise. That is, until they killed it all and turned it into a desert wasteland. There were scientists and engineers and mathematicians. They built amazing cities, technological marvels with immense crystal spires that poked up high into the Martian skies, glimmering like fire in the crimson atmosphere. Or perhaps they all lived below ground like ants, in vast subterranean caverns hewn out of solid rock. The Martians looked human, vaguely Swedish with pale skin and flowing blonde hair, except they were also at least a foot shorter than we were because of the different Martian gravity. Or perhaps they were taller than us, for much the same reason. They were blue-skinned vegetarians. They were hairy ape-like beasts. They looked like squids that traveled in giant robotic machines. They had extra toes, extra limbs, elephant-like trunks, unicorn horns, insect-like exoskeletons. The possibilities were endless. During the late 19th century, both Europe and the United States became gripped with Mars fever. Hundreds of books and newspaper articles were published each year speculating about what Martian life might be like. Back then, it wasn't so much a question of if there was life on Mars, but what shape the Martian inhabitants might take, and what could we humans do to communicate with them. The ancient Romans gave Mars its name, basing it off the Roman god of war because of the planet's blood-like color. During the mid-16th century, Copernicus fundamentally changed the way scientists viewed Earth's place in the solar system, and Mars was a major part of that. By observing the unusual path of the red planet in the sky, as it seemingly reversed course, moving back and forth across space, Copernicus was able to determine that the Sun was actually at the center of the solar system, and not the Earth. That kicked off a major paradigm shift in the way people thought about life on other planets. Because if Earth wasn't quite so special as we thought, then couldn't life have evolved elsewhere on other planets as well? Astronomers soon zoomed in on Mars being the likeliest candidate to support life because Mars was our closest celestial neighbor. We soon realized how Earth-like it was. It was about half the size of planet Earth and had similar daily rotations. As more powerful telescopes were developed, we learned the red planet had seasons and even contained dark, colored regions that many scientists speculated may have been oceans and wintry polar ice caps. The idea that there could be other people out there much like us lit up Victorian imaginations. In 1892, the Hampshire Telegraph and Sussex Chronicle published an article about a wealthy French heiress who, in her will, set aside her considerable fortune for the sole purpose of communicating with Mars. The elderly woman had an idea to construct a gigantic mirror that could be used to flash a signal to Mars, under the assumption the Martians were likely looking back at us through their telescopes just as we were doing with them. In 1894, the journal Nature published a brief article about a series of bright projections that were spotted on the border between light and shadow on the surface of Mars. The implication made by the anonymous author was that the Martians were up there, and they were trying to signal us. Back in the late 19th century, even respected scientists began seriously considering the possibility of life on Mars. But there was a big problem with much of the Mars fever that had gripped the world. It all started with a single mistranslated word. I'm Nate Hale, coming to you from the flip side of the flat Earth, and this is The Conspirators. In 1877, the Italian astronomer Giovanni Schiaparelli observed a web-like network of dark lines he saw on Mars through his telescope that he called canali. The word canali should have been translated in English to the word channels, but was instead mistranslated to the word canals. This made a big difference, because canals were something that were strictly man-made, as opposed to channels that were formed through natural means. Enter Percival Lowell, the man credited with sparking the late 19th century obsession with Mars. He was born in Boston in 1855 to a wealthy family in the textile industry. Lowell went to Harvard where he excelled in both history and mathematics. Some of his fellow Bostonians considered him to be among the most brilliant people their fair city had ever produced. After graduating, Lowell took up the family business. The textiles were boring to a young man with ambitions and an overactive imagination. In 1882, Lowell heard about an exotic, faraway land called Japan. He traveled to Japan and elsewhere throughout Asia, returning home to write three well-received books about Japanese life and another about Korea. It was after Lowell read the work of Giovanni Schiparelli that he shifted his fascination to an even farther away land, Mars. Lowell had had an interest in astronomy from an early age. He'd been gifted a small telescope as a child, and he sometimes spent his nights observing and pondering the stars above. But it was when Lowell read the erroneous reports that Schiparelli had discovered canals on Mars that the wealthy textile heir went all in on his study of space. Mind you, Lowell didn't create the idea of life on Mars, but he did popularize it and bring it into the mainstream. An 1831 astronomy textbook titled The Young Astronomer very matter-of-factly refers to the beings who live on Mars and speculates on the way Earth must appear from their vantage point. In 1838, astronomer Thomas Dick suggested there were vast land masses and oceans on the red planet analogous to our own. In 1894, Mars was due to pass at its closest point to Earth in its elliptical orbit, which meant this would allow prime viewing for someone with a small fortune and a large telescope. Lowell had the first part, and he immediately put it towards construction of the second. He built the Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona, with the knowledge that the clear desert skies would give him an optimum view of Mars when it was at its closest. Lowell would later claim to have seen the canals on Mars with his own eyes. He wrote three books on Mars in which he envisioned a vast Martian society, He didn't care that other scientists were claiming the Martian atmosphere was too cold and too thin, and that its gravity was too weak to sustain life. Lowell was not a man to be dissuaded, facts be damned. He speculated that the Martians lived in what sounded like his own idea of utopia, a place where there were no silly labor unions or workers' rights, no progressivism, no socialism, none of those things that threatened to upset the balance of society in America's industrial age. Of course, there were plenty of scientists who scoffed at Percival Lowell. After all, no one else had ever been able to observe the same series of canals he swore he saw lining the planet. But despite what the other academics said about him, Lowell's ideas proved to be wildly popular with the public. Stories and newspaper articles began being published all around the world that further extrapolated on Lowell's ideas of life on Mars. It was all the late 19th century speculation about Mars, in particular the article I mentioned that described the mysterious flashes of light on the planet's surface, that would lead a British biologist named Herbert George Wells to write about a very different sort of Martian. One that wasn't so much interested in having a friendly dialogue with us humans, as they did want to come here and conquer us. That story, of course, was The War of the Worlds first serialized in Pearson's magazine in 1897, and later collected and revised into a best-selling novella that has never been out of print since. In 1899, another legendary name in the scientific community only further added to speculation that Mars was alive. It was in that year Serbian physicist Nikola Tesla announced that some cosmic radio waves his instruments picked up may have been an intelligently generated signal from Mars although later research revealed they were probably just radio waves emitted from interstellar gas clouds. By the turn of the century, Percival Lowell turned his focus away from Mars and began speculating about the possibility of a mysterious ninth planet that lie beyond Neptune that he called Planet X. Although Lowell's books about Mars were largely discredited by the early 20th century, it was his belief in Planet X that turned out to have some basis in fact. Alas, Lowell would not live to be proven correct. He died in 1916 of a cerebral hemorrhage. But in 1930, a young astronomer at the Lowell Observatory named Clyde Tombaugh discovered what was considered, at least for several decades, the ninth planet in the solar system, Pluto. By the early 20th century, scientific thinking had largely shifted toward believing Mars was a lifeless planet. But pulp magazines continued to publish stories about the Martians who lived on our celestial cousin next door. Many of these stories tended to describe the Martians as peaceful, advanced beings who sought to enrich the lives of us Earthlings by sharing their wealth of knowledge and technology. But over time, other stories began being published about Martians who were a lot less friendly to us humans. Many literary historians point to these early science fiction stories about Martian invaders as reflecting social prejudices and paranoia about European immigrants coming to America, stealing jobs and destroying the American way of life. It was these pulp magazine stories and public fears about outsiders that helped prime the pump for a legendary radio broadcast that went out across the U.S. on October 30th, 1938. Although the story you've likely grown up hearing isn't what really happened you've undoubtedly heard about Orson Welles's 1938 radio dramatization of H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds. The way the story gets most commonly told is that on Halloween Eve, CBS Radio broadcast a show by Orson Welles in which he used realistic-sounding news broadcasts and on-the-scene radio reports to describe an alien invasion advancing on New York City. The radio drama was so realistic that it caused a mass panic. Thousands of New Yorkers fled their homes. Mass hysteria and looting erupted. People ran screaming into the night, afraid the Martians were going to disintegrate them with their death rays. The problem with this story that often gets underreported is that practically none of it was true. For starters, not many people even tuned in to listen to Wells' broadcast that evening. Most people were tuning into the much more popular Chase and Sanborn Comedy Hour that aired at the same time the War of the Worlds broadcast was on. Only 2% of the listening public later admitted to tuning into the War of the Worlds. Frank Stanton, the president of CBS, would later publicly scoff at the idea that a mass panic resulted from the radio program, since hardly anybody was listening in the first place. In fact, CBS's executives were so concerned. That the realistic-sounding program might be taken seriously? That they insisted that Wells begin the show with a disclaimer stating that the entire thing was made up? This would lead to one other variation on the myth about the mass panic. The claimed only listeners who tuned in a few minutes late and missed the warnings were driven to freak out. But hospital records from that evening don't show any spike in injuries or deaths. Nor do records show any increase in the number of police reports filed. So where did all the stories about mass panic come from then? From a source that had a vested interest in discrediting radio broadcasting in general, namely, the newspapers. As radio swiftly grew to become the number one source of news and entertainment in homes across America, print newspapers began to see their advertising dollars dwindle. In order to prevent radio from stealing more of their revenue, newspaper moguls across the country began publishing highly exaggerated versions of what went on that evening as a way of demonstrating to advertisers how dangerous radio really was. The New York Times, the Boston Daily Globe, the Detroit News, the Chicago Herald, and many other major newspapers published articles that spread false claims about mass chaos brought on by the War of the Worlds broadcast. A few listener surveys taken in the weeks following the broadcast used any hint that people might have been frightened by the show and exaggerated it to the level of blind hysteria. There was, in fact, one scared listener who tried suing CBS for $50,000 over the so-called nervous shock he suffered, but the lawsuit was dismissed. Another story claims that a Massachusetts man successfully sued for the cost of a pair of men's loafers After he spent the money he'd saved for new shoes on a train ticket out of town to flee the Martians, Orson Welles paid for his new shoes out of pocket. Although Orson Welles publicly apologized for any damage his show might have caused, close friends of his would later tell reporters that Welles privately loved
0: all the free publicity the myth brought him. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories? Their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates we examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast.
1: Before we continue, I want to take a moment to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Mack Weldon. Mack Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. I can tell you from personal experience how easy it was to shop their website. And I can also tell you with confidence that Mack Weldon will be some of the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants and more that you will ever wear. They have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial which means they eliminate odor. They want you to be comfortable, so if you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can keep it, and they'll still refund you. No questions asked. Not only does Mack Weldon's underwear, socks, and shirts look good, they perform well, too. It's good for working out, going to work, going out on dates, or just everyday life. I recently got a bunch of great-looking and great-fitting clothes from their easy-to-use website. So far, I've tried their premium socks and underwear, along with a really sharp-looking button-up Oxford shirt, and my personal favorite, their super-comfy Ace half-zip pullover. My new Oxford looks great around the office, and I've worn my half-zip pullover pretty much everywhere. Right now, listeners to The Conspirators can get 20% off their first order by visiting macweldon.com and entering promo code CONSPIRATORS. If you're interested in getting 20% off your first order, you can find the link and the promo code in the show notes. And now, back to the show. By the time World War II was over, public fears of another sort of invader were beginning to overtake America Communists. During the Cold War, fear of communist invaders became wrapped up with public fears of an alien invasion from the Red Planet. In fact, one popular film from 1953 titled Invaders from Mars was all about aliens that invaded a small town and take over the bodies of its residents. But speculation about life on Mars would change once again when NASA's Mariner 4 mission photographed the Martian surface and showed the world a barren and lifeless planet. But that was only a temporary letdown. In 1976, the Viking mission got up close and personal with the Red Planet and created a brand new conspiracy theory that persists to this day. The Viking 1 was searching for a good location where NASA could bring the Viking 2 lander down to the surface. But when it passed over a rocky region of Mars known as Cydonia, it took a couple of shadowy pictures that convinced many people that Mars once hosted a vibrant and technologically superior race of beings. I'm of course referring to the legendary face on Mars. Sidonia is in a region of Mars somewhere between the planet's cratered southern highlands and the smoother northern plains. Although the Viking 1 took photos of several enormous mesas, the mesa featured in plate number 035A72 stands out from all the others because it appears to show a nearly two-mile-long humanoid face with eyes, a nose, a mouth, and even some sort of ceremonial headdress. NASA didn't do themselves any favors because when they first released the photos to the public, a few scientists jokingly pointed out the face on Mars to reporters, who instead took them seriously. After realizing their mistake, NASA was quick to dismiss these photos as nothing more than a case of pareidolia. Our very human tendency to see familiar patterns in random objects. Once photos of the face on Mars reached tabloids and TV shows like In Search Of, NASA tried to explain away the face as nothing more than a trick of light and shadow caused by the angle of the sun in relation to the rock formation. But ever since, true believers have continued to hold the Viking 1 photos as proof that Mars once had an intelligent civilization, and that NASA was now trying to cover up this fact from the public. The main proponent of this theory is Richard C. Hoagland, a speaker and author who in 1987 published his book The Monument of Mars, A City on the Edge of Forever. Any Trekkies out there might notice that title contains a tongue-in-cheek reference to a popular episode of the original Star Trek series. Ogland, incidentally, is also reportedly the person who petitioned NASA to name the first space shuttle the Enterprise. Ogland believes that not only is Sidonia the location of an enormous monument with a humanoid face, but he also went on to describe several other prominent features across the Sidonian plain that he believes to be intelligently constructed relics of a long-lost civilization. In his books and lectures, Hoagland often points to such structures as what he describes as a five-sided pyramid, a ruined fortress, and a massive cluster of structures he calls the city square. Hoagland believes the ancient city may date back at least half a million years, to a time when if you stood directly in the city center, you could have seen the summer solstice sun rising over the face on Mars. Over the following years, many scientists have cried foul over Richard Hoagland's claims, In April 1998, NASA even sent its Mars orbiter on a flyby over Cydonia to take clearer photos which they hoped would dispel the story about the face on Mars once and for all. These new photos were ten times sharper than those taken on the Viking mission and clearly showed the face on Mars to be nothing more than a rather unremarkable rocky mesa with no hint of intelligent design behind it. But the skeptics were not appeased. They insisted these images had been doctored in order to keep the NASA cover-up alive. Then in 2001, the Mars Surveyor took another series of even higher resolution images of Cydonia, all from different angles that NASA was able to composite together in a 3D model that clearly showed the face on Mars to be a rock formation, similar to some of the mesas found throughout the American Southwest. Although these new images didn't appear to show anything resembling alien influence or construction, They actually did help NASA scientists in their own quest to find life on Mars. Some of the features photographed by the Mars Surveyor showed signs that water may have once flowed freely on the Martian surface, and even had its rocky surface scarred by moving glaciers. Current scientific thinking leans towards evidence that Mars may have once had an abundance of water on its surface that evaporated eons ago. And if Mars was anything like Earth, then where there once was water there may have been life. But if liquid water did exist on Mars, or perhaps does to this day just below the surface, that still doesn't mean an advanced civilization once lived there. At best, NASA scientists are hoping to find some sort of microscopic organism similar to the extremophile single-celled organisms we have found deep below the ice in Antarctica or other seemingly inhospitable locales. Anything bigger or more complex just doesn't seem plausible with what we know about Mars. It doesn't help all the serious science being done that over the decades there have been countless movies and TV shows that continue to fuel the belief that NASA is behind a massive cover-up. On June twentieth, 1977, a documentary aired on British television titled Science Report Alternative 3 that shocked the United Kingdom. The host, noted British broadcaster Tim Brinton, explained that the filmmakers behind the documentary had originally set out to do a short film about the brain drain of British scientists leaving the UK. Only their investigation turned into something far bigger and far more disturbing than anything they'd ever imagined. They began looking into a handful of scientists and one Royal Air Force officer who, they soon found out, didn't just leave the country, but appeared to vanish without a trace. This led reporters down a deep rabbit hole to uncover a government conspiracy involving one of the biggest cover-ups in history. At one point, the documentary crew met with a U.S. government whistleblower who, upon their next meeting, had somehow been driven hopelessly insane. Later in the program, a former Apollo astronaut tells a reporter on camera that he saw something on the moon's surface he shouldn't have. Although he refused to tell the documentary crew just what it was he saw. Interestingly, the documentary is interspersed with a frank discussion of what was then described as the greenhouse effect. Although we'd more commonly know it today as global climate change. He interviewed an atmospheric scientist who gives a dire warning about increasing global temperatures and the potentially catastrophic effect it would have on life on Earth. The whistleblower also told of a think tank of government scientists who came up with three viable alternatives to preserve the human race. The first was to take the Thanos approach and greatly reduce the population of people on Earth. The second option would be to find a way to greatly decrease consumption of the resources needed to sustain life on Earth. But it's the third alternative, the one the show takes its name from, that provides the grimmest possibility. Alternative 3 states that life as we know it is doomed. And the only way to keep the human race alive would be to establish a human colony on another planet. This then leads to the most shocking revelation in the documentary. The filmmakers were able to decode and play a mysterious recording left behind by a prominent British scientist, Sir William Ballantyne, which appeared blank until played with a special decoder circuit. This piece of film revealed a shocking truth. It contained actual footage from a secret joint US-Soviet space mission that landed an unmanned spacecraft on the planet Mars on May 22, 1963. Not only that, but the Mars lander footage actually revealed something alive moving beneath the Martian surface. It's a mind-blowing set of revelations, with devastating ramifications for the entire planet. But there's one big problem with the film Alternative 3. None of it was real. It was an April Fool's joke cooked up by Anglia Television, although scheduling problems caused it to air several weeks later than originally planned. But even though the film ends clearly showing the date it was originally supposed to air, April 1st, 1977, this hasn't prevented a whole slew of conspiracy theories from being built around Alternative 3. The show has built a reputation as being one of the greatest suppressed documentaries of all time, but this is easily disproven considering it was released on DVD in the UK in 2007. You can even see it for yourself on YouTube if you're so inclined. A Companion book by Leslie Watkins was released the following year. The original cover contained the blurb, a horrifying full story behind the explosive TV documentary. The book expanded on the ideas put forth in the phony documentary. A 2010 re-release of the book purported to contain even more explosive details behind the cover-up. The book goes on to explain in further detail how the entire Cold War was nothing but a ruse to cover the joint cooperation between the Soviet Union and the United States to form a secret space program. And that the entire NASA space program was actually a bit of sleight of hand to distract people from noticing there was already a secret base set up on the dark side of the moon from which the Mars mission was launched. According to the film, the space shuttle program had been in existence far longer than anyone knew. A crashed Russian space probe was used to cover for the detonation of a nuclear device on the Martian surface in order to rapidly alter the atmosphere to make it more suitable for humans. In the end, the goal was to create a sort of Noah's Ark containing only a hand-picked selection of the best and brightest from Earth. Scientists, celebrities, world leaders, and wealthy one-percenters. In truth, Alternative 3 was dreamed up by a writer for Anglia Television named David Ambrose. Who got the idea when he began to wonder about what happened to people who reportedly vanished and were never seen again. He discussed the idea with a director named Christopher Miles with whom he'd worked before. And eventually came up with the idea that they all went to Mars. From there, the pair came up with the idea to film the entire thing as a documentary, inspired by Orson Welles' War of the Worlds broadcast. Now, with the germ of an idea of a Mars colony, Ambrose had to come up with a reason for it to exist. This led him to consult with some scientists at Oxford University who shared with him their grave concerns for the future over what was then described as the greenhouse effect. It's sad to realize that the devastating effects of global climate change were already on the minds of scientists all the way back in 1977. One of the scientists drew him a diagram that they reproduced in the film it actually shows a pretty good representation of how the Earth is getting warmer due to increasing carbon in the atmosphere. The filmmakers hired a respected broadcaster named Tim Brinton, who later became a Member of Parliament, to give the doc an extra air of believability. Real NASA video and other news footage was intercut with their own fake footage. Film engineers even worked to physically degrade some of the footage to make it look more authentic. In the end, the filmmakers probably did too good of a job making the entire fake documentary look authentic, because even today there are people who insist that the film is real. It doesn't seem to dissuade anyone when you point out that even though the show presents itself as the latest episode of a program called Science Report, no such program ever existed before or after this single episode aired. The idea that a major British television studio would broadcast a hoax of this magnitude wasn't even unprecedented. April Fool's hoaxes had appeared regularly on British Airwaves since a 1954 BBC documentary series broadcast an episode about a spaghetti harvest, in which a group of Italian growers dutifully cut down the latest crop from their spaghetti trees. But a scheduling issue prevented Alternative 3 from being shown on April Fool's Day the way it was meant to, which only added to its longevity in conspiracy circles. Following the program's airing in June of that year, there was a great deal of public backlash from confused viewers who phoned the network demanding an explanation. A simultaneous showing in Australia caused such public outrage that the government banned all such hoaxes from its airwaves. Despite some interest shown by NBC, Alternative 3 never aired in the United States, which only added fuel to the belief that the program was being somehow suppressed. The companion book published in 1978 caused the conspiracy to grow even further. The author, Leslie Watkins, took Ambrose's script and expanded on it greatly. He described shadowy meetings between government officials and secret bases beneath the polar ice cap. He also went on to blow the lid off the nefarious government plan for Alternative 1 to rip a hole in the ozone layer, allowing in a bombardment by deadly solar radiation to wipe out billions of people by giving them all skin cancer. According to the book, Alternative 2 involves setting up massive underground bunkers for the world's elites to wait out the mass extinction going on up top. For the most part, Alternative 3 remained as described in the documentary, with one additional detail that a slave labor force would be brought along with them to Mars. Although the book was published as a work of speculation, it managed to strike a chord with conspiracy theorists around the world because so many of its ideas play into a number of popular theories. Everything from NASA hiding proof of life on other planets, to secret underground bunkers for world leaders to wait out the apocalypse, to moon landing conspiracies. There was even a further conspiracy theory being floated around that several of the filmmakers involved had been murdered to keep them quiet about what they knew. But a quick IMDB search is all you need to do to dispel this theory. Most of the cast and crew have lengthy filmmaking credentials. One of the actors even went on to appear in a James Bond film the very same year. In the end, there's probably no way to dissuade some people from believing Alternative 3 was real. There's even one further conspiracy theory surrounding the film that admits that yes, the documentary is a fake, but it's actually a bit of government disinformation to cover the fact that there really is a top secret Mars colony that you're not supposed to know about. Today, we have an overabundance of Mars conspiracies. Eagle-eyed viewers continue to pick out strange anomalies in the photos taken by NASA's Opportunity and Curiosity rovers that appear to be living creatures. There's one famous image that some people think looks like a humanoid female. There's another often referred to as the bunny rabbit that appears to be a long-eared creature on the Martian surface that apparently moved in subsequent photos. That one, NASA contends, is nothing more than a piece of debris from one of the lander missions that broke off and is likely just blowing around in the wind. Don't even get me started on the recent conspiracy theory that Mars contains a slave colony of Earth children taken there decades ago. That particular theory originated on Alex Jones's program and appears to spin off from one of the more popular theories surrounding Alternative 3. The fact is, Mars just isn't fit to sustain higher life forms as we know them. The surface is continually bombarded with radiation, the temperature at night can drop more than 100 degrees below zero. And what little atmosphere exists is mostly carbon dioxide. But despite how inhospitable the Red Planet appears, there is at least one former NASA scientist who believes that not only is there life on Mars, but that we already found it back in 1976. Recently, former NASA scientist Gilbert Levin made national headlines when he published an opinion piece in Scientific American, in which he contends the Viking 2 lander actually discovered proof of microbial life in the Martian soil back in 1976. As part of the Lander's experiments, a Martian soil sample was mixed with a nitrogen-based nutrient solution that was labeled with a radioactive carbon compound. The idea was that any microorganisms in the soil would metabolize the nutrients and release a detectable radioactive carbon dioxide gas that would match the signature of the radioactive compound. Levin contends that the experiment tested positive back then for microorganisms in two separate Mars landers that were about 4,000 miles apart. But NASA's official position remains the Viking 2 tests failed to produce any proof of living organisms. Many scientists don't believe we'll ever be able to definitively prove that living organisms exist in the Martian soil until we manage to bring samples back to Earth and test them in a laboratory environment. But, once again, some say we already possess the proof we need. In 1996, a Martian meteorite that had been mislabeled and kept in storage was tested and showed what some scientists believe may have been fossilized Martian microorganisms. Although, once again, plenty of other scientists were quick to downplay this revelation by claiming the microfossils may have simply come from the thousands of years the meteor spent on Earth. So the search for life on Mars continues. In 2013, the Mars Curiosity rover landed in a dry lake bed and sent photographs back to Earth that appeared to show markings in the Martian soil made by flowing water. Upcoming NASA missions plan on sending other robotic rovers to the Martian surface to collect even more soil samples and to even land in the frigid polar region in the hope that they will be able to find water ice. And if all that goes well... Plans remain underway for the first human mission to Mars to launch sometime around 2033. If that does come to pass, and one day a man walks on Mars, we may discover that the Martians we've been looking for all along were really us. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Michael, Kelly, and Christina for signing up and helping support the show. Just a reminder, patrons of the show get access to all sorts of bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our bonus exclusive mini-episodes. I'm also asking you to spread the love and invite your friends and family to subscribe and rate The Conspirators on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's rankings and spreads the good word to more people. If you're not on Apple, not to worry. You can also find us in most of the other places you get your podcasts. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire catalog of shows. Other than that, you can follow us on social media, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Feel free to reach out and let us know how we're doing. Thanks again for tuning in, and I hope you'll join us again next time.